Welcome to the Biblical Significance of Christmas podcast, sponsored by Reformation Heritage Books. I'm Dr. Tavis Bollinger, Director of Media at Reformation Heritage Books, the sponsor of this podcast. The five episodes in this podcast include a series of sermons preached by the prolific author, pastor, theologian, professor, J.V. Fesco, on questions related to the birth of Christ. Fesco's most recent book, The Birth of Christ, is organized around five chapters covering central themes in the Christmas story, including Mary's famous Magnificat, the actual birth of Christ, the phrase, O come Emmanuel, the role of the Magi, and the prayer of Simeon. We hope you enjoy the series of expositions on the biblical significance of Christmas and invite you to get a copy of J.V. Fesco's book, The Birth of Christ, from our website at www.heritagebooks.org. This morning's message comes to us from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly... um, uh, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was." When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we uh, give thanks for your word, for indeed you feed us as hungry children and as you are merciful and loving Father. We rejoice, O Lord, in the fact that when we come to you needing food, you do not give to us a serpent or a stone, but rather you feed us with Christ, the manna from heaven. And we rejoice, O Lord, that unlike the manna with which you fed the fathers from of old, Uh, This manna, O Lord, satisfies. Uh, This manna 
uh, leads and gives uh, unto us eternal life. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would feed us uh, Christ, that you would conform us more to his image, that you would uh, not only uh, satisfy our hunger, but that you would quench our thirst so that, O Lord, we would continue to follow you as we pilgrim in this land and as we look to Zion, the uh, new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think when we give thought to uh, the the season, we undoubtedly take a look at uh, the manger. And one of the things as we think about the manger is we think of that story of the Magi, or at least the three wise men, as it's popularly known, go and uh, present themselves and their gifts before uh, the newborn king. Three men supposedly, here we see, from the east. And this is perhaps some of the basis and some of the reason as to why we exchange gifts on Christmas Day. Just as the wise men brought gifts to Jesus, so we uh, exchange gifts and so we give gifts to one another. Uh, in the more recent past, it's a story that has even birthed the song, uh, The Little Drummer Boy. He was summoned by the Magi, but he had no gift to give. And so instead, he played his drum for Jesus. And as that song goes, I played my best for him, and he smiled at me. And so before you know it, it's uh, Bing Crosby and Christmas presents uh, under the tree. And perhaps that becomes the more familiar frame of reference for the birth of Christ. Now, the popular account, I think, of the wise men and Jesus echoes some of these elements. And I think it's okay if we enjoy that uh, Christmas song. It's okay, obviously, if we exchange gifts at this particular time of the year. But on the other hand, we want to recognize that the biblical passage from which these popular cultural practices originate uh, pulsates with themes of truth that are far richer and deeper, uh, themes of truth that we undoubtedly want to be sure that we understand, uh, that we uh, really focus our attention upon, and that we plant deep within our hearts. Because ultimately, we want to recognize that what uh, we find in the account of the wise men as they come to worship Jesus is in many respects a divine miracle of revelation. It's a miracle from the vantage point that why on earth do you find these Gentiles traveling at a great distance in order to present gifts that were fit for royalty uh, to this infant child? Why do we want to do that? I think that what we want to do, therefore, is uh, seek to free our minds from the cultural captivity of the holiday, and we instead want to give thought to these amazing truths uh, that Matthew records here in his gospel. And so we're going to do so under two particular headings. We're going to do so first under Gentiles and geography, and then second, uh, we want to think, give thought to government and gifts. Uh, Those perhaps sound like Jeopardy categories, but I promise you they're not. We want to give thought to those ideas that we find here in this passage. So let's give first thought here to Gentiles and geography. And that one of the things I regularly uh, tell my students is to pay particular attention to all of the tiny details that you see in the particular passage of Scripture 
When the Lord inspired uh, his word and inspired the prophets of old and inspired the disciples uh, to record these events, we talk about the plenary inspiration of the scriptures. In other words, every single jot and tittle, every single detail. And so in this case, we want to take note that first, Matthew's gospel is directed at a Jewish audience. It's directed at a Jewish audience. You know, and we see this particularly as he gives the genealogy of Christ, where he identifies Jesus as the son of David, as well as the son of Abraham. And so these specific facts bear witness to the Jewish character of Matthew's gospel. There are many other details within Matthew's gospel that Jews would be familiar with that Gentiles, for the most part, would not know or understand. And yet, the text here in verse 1 begins somewhat peculiarly when it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Why on earth would wise men come from the east? And from what specific country or region did they originate? And what exactly are wise men? These are some important questions that we want to ask. The fact that they came from the east means that they were Gentiles. They were not Jews. Matthew does not identify them as Jews. Moreover, Matthew identifies them as wise men, as magioi, which is where we get the English word magi. The word is uh, the same word from which we derive the word magic or magician. So you could say three magicians uh, arrived And in fact, in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, it places magi among the enchanters and the sorcerers there in Babylon. And so uh, many people believe that magi or wise men uh, practiced uh, astrology, for example, looking to the stars in order to try to determine uh, the outcome and the events of history. And so to say the least, the presence of three enchanters or three sorcerers or three astrologers coming from the east are really out of place. They're really out of place. You know, you could think of different ways in which something might appear out of place if you showed up in overalls to a black tie affair. Well, you would know that that's out of place. Well, so here, here are these magi. Moreover, we don't know exactly whether or not there were three of them. We know for certain that there were three gifts that they presented. But we don't know if there were three. There could have been more. And so here are these odd figures, these three magi, or I'm sorry, these these magi uh, that are out of place. And a likely scenario is that they came from Babylon. And like the predecessors in Daniel's day, they were the ones who studied the stars. They studied and promoted astrology. So what are they doing in Jerusalem? Why are they here? Why had they come so far? I I mapped this out uh, on the Internet, and uh, it's an 800-mile journey. 800-mile journey. Uh, That took undoubtedly maybe a month or more depending upon the type of speed that they were traveling at. You know, when the wife and I, a number of years ago, went on a, a, on a 10-day hike in the high Sierra Nevada mountains, uh, that was something where the, the 
biggest day that we had was where we hiked some 12 miles in one day, and that took us maybe uh, six hours in that particular day. And it was it was a lot of work. You know, you're, you're carrying all of your gear, and you're going over all sorts of mountains and crags and, and rocks and hills. And so you can imagine it must have taken them a long time to traverse 800 miles, and that you really had to want to be in Jerusalem in order to make such a great journey. And so the text also tells us some other important points as it relates uh, to what we would say Gentiles and geography. We see, for example, in verse 2, that these uh, wise men ask the question uh, at the beginning of verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Here they come to worship Jesus. They were Gentiles, and yet they want to worship the Jewish Messiah. As strange as this may seem, I want, I think that what Matthew is trying to show his readers is that indeed Emmanuel, God in the flesh, something that he refers to in Matthew chapter 1, uh, God in the flesh is in their midst. And that the Old Testament prophesied of a time when the Gentiles would begin to flow into Jerusalem to worship the one true living God. For example, in Isaiah chapter 2, we read, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, shall be established as the highest of mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So the prophet was saying that in the latter days, in the days to come, the nations would flow into the house of the Lord to worship God. And so here, even if it's in small bands, you begin to see the fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah as this band of Gentile wise men makes the 800-mile journey from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem to worship this baby Jesus. The psalmist, for example, says in Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. At this point, it's not, for example, a, a, a massive royal reception, uh, the likes of which the world has never seen. That, of course, is coming with the return of Christ. But it is undoubtedly a foretaste of what is to come as this band of wise men make their way to worship Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I think the typical events, that is the foreshadows of the Old Testament, when Gentile royalty, for example, would come from great distances to go and marvel at the wisdom of Solomon, was now giving way to the reality, the anti-typical glory of God with us, Emmanuel. What is it that they say in the latter half of verse 2? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Well, if these men were astrologers, 
perhaps from Babylon, then it would make sense that they would be continually studying the stars and the heavens and they would note the cosmic anomaly. Here's this unique star. We've not seen something like this before. And so that this would be one of the great factors that would drive them to follow this star and to make this 800-mile trek in order to worship Jesus, the King of the Jews. But at the same time, they also said, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? They had more than simply astrological knowledge. Scholars take a guess, and I think it seems like a likely one, that just as Daniel and the exiles came into Babylon, they likely brought copies of the Old Testament with them. And in bringing copies of the Old Testament with them, these Babylonian wise men would have had access to the scriptures of Israel and would have studied them. And so here, I think we begin to see, and we can at least begin to speculate in a responsible way as to how it is that these wise men would learn of the birth of the king of the Jews. And that they would not only read of it in the scriptures, but God would then begin to give them this astrological sign, this uh cosmic occurrence of this star in the heavens that would lead them to make this great 800-mile journey so that they too could worship the king of the Jews. But note the, the, the miracle of salvation that we see here, that as God takes his people into exile, it was not simply for their discipline, but it was also to begin to spread the news of the gospel throughout the world. We'll be back after a quick break. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. There was, for example, hints of this in the Old Testament that this would occur. If you remember from the book of Numbers, when Balaam, the Gentile pagan mercenary prophet, uh, was hired by Balak, the king of Beor. He tried to hire him to curse Israel. And rather than curse Israel, Balaam the prophet began uttering blessings over Israel. And we read in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, I see him, that is the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So just as Gentiles periodically throughout the Old Testament would see the Messiah from afar, these Gentile wise men beheld the Messiah from afar and God, by his grace, drew them near so that they could worship. So I think one of the things that we have to recognize as we contemplate this is if we want to ensure that we do not lose track of 
of the narrative and what the scriptures teach us about the birth of Christ is we ultimately have to reject so much of the popular notions as to what our cultural uh, setting says about the birth of Christ as to how it happens, what occurs, and many in many cases, for example, what Jesus even looks like. You know, in the so-called sacred art that we see from time to time, or as well as the Hollywood depictions of Christ, I think we're always looking into the long well of history, and we ultimately see a reflection of ourselves. You know, whether it's in the movies, it was Max von Sydow uh, that portrayed Jesus in The Greatest Story Ever Told. Or more recently, it's James Caviezel and Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. When we look into the mirror and we see somebody who looks like us, it likely invokes the idea that we belong. He's like us. He looks like me. And yet... The biblical passage here is saying the exact opposite. Just as the Magi are out of place, they're Gentiles. They really don't fit in this picture. And yet we who worship Jesus, the King of the Jews, we too should recognize that we are out of place. We do not fit in this narrative if we were to write it. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? That we Gentiles were aliens and strangers to the covenants of Israel. But that we who were afar off, I think at least in terms of the geography for the wise men, they literally were afar off. We who were afar off have been brought near and that Christ has torn down uh, the wall of division, making out of the two, Jew and Gentile, one man. And so it's only by God's grace in Christ that he has drawn us outsiders, we who do not fit, we who do not belong, we who would otherwise be lost and mired in our idolatry. He has brought us nigh so that we could be grafted onto the one tree of Israel, the Israel of God, so that we could be grafted into Christ. You know, I think Matthew is slowly but surely unveiling this mystery, that which was once hidden but now revealed in his gospel to his readers, as that Jesus is not only the Messiah and the Savior of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. He's hinting at this quite powerfully when he says, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, that Ruth, the Gentile Moabitess, is included in the genealogy of Christ. An amazing fact when you think about that. Ruth, a Moabitess, is included. Or that Rahab, the prostitute, is also mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. So you have Ruth, and you have Rahab, and what is even a greater compounding factor with the mention of these women is the fact that women are mentioned in the genealogy of the Messiah in a time and in a day when women were not warranted mentioned in genealogies. And yet here, God in his grace includes them, not merely in this genealogy, but in the genealogy of God in the flesh. Gentile women, and now these Gentile magi. He's Babylonians, most likely. And then, of course, 
these hints, as bright and brilliant as they are, give way to the eventual full outpouring of the grace of the gospel in the Great Commission where Jesus himself tells his church to go, therefore, and to make disciples of all the nations, of all the nations. So in all of this, beloved in Christ, we should rejoice that by the grace of God that we are a part now of the throng of Gentiles that are now flowing into the heavenly Jerusalem each and every Lord's Day as we gather in the presence of our triune living God to worship him in truth and in spirit. Uh, A blessing and a joy that we otherwise would not have apart from the grace of God. This brings us to our second point, which is government and gifts. And that when you look at this particular account, it is absolutely thick with irony. Because it's manifest, this irony is manifest in the reaction of the government officials, of Herod and the Pharisees and the scribes. Their reaction stands in stark contrast to the attitudes and to the actions of these Gentile wise men. Ironically, Herod was ignorant of the birth of Christ. Shouldn't Herod, who was the king of the Jews at that time, be aware of, looking forward to, and anticipating the birth of the Messiah? You know, if we as Christians... Uh, for the return of Christ should awaken each and every day asking ourselves, is today the day that Christ returns? Herod definitely should have awoken each day saying, is today the day that the Messiah is born? And so Herod called the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, according to verse 4, which consulted with him, and they were generically aware of things as they quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, concerning the fact that, yes, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And yet, how does Herod react? Herod summoned the wise men to go search for the Messiah, and so he says under the feigned veil of worship, so that he could worship him too. Now, Bethlehem was only about five miles from Jerusalem, so why wouldn't Herod himself go? You know, I can tell you that as a father, sometimes I'm tired. <laughs> and I get, I get lazy. And I'll start to take out the trash and I think, wait a minute, I got kids. <laughs> i got to have one of my kids take out the trash. And I think, yeah, but the trash can, it's only just outside. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going. <laughs> Hey, get over here, kid, take, the, take this trash out for dad. You know, and I don't care, they'll be upstairs like, get down here, take this trash out, it's because I'm lazy. Now maybe it's with good reason, it's the end of the day, I'm tired, I've been up since, you know, before sunrise, and I think, yeah, you know, I need a break. But here, it's only five miles away, he could have just as easily gotten up himself and gone. I think it was perhaps spiritual sloth but also because I think it was deceit. He wanted to kill the infant. He did not want somebody to usurp his authority. He wanted to kill him rather than worship him. And in broad strokes, that 
may, uh, that are reminiscent of Pharaoh's slaughter of the uh, Israelite boys, Herod, of course, went on to kill many Israelite male infants. The same truth we find described in the fantastic imagery of the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and following, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. There, that language of the imagery of the dragon trying to kill the child is, uh, is speaking of Herod's attempt to kill Jesus. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1260 days. And yet, just as in the days of Moses, how uh, God protected his people, in this case, he saw providentially to the protection of his son, and he warns uh, the Magi in a dream in verse 12 not to return to Herod. But look also to the reaction of the people. The scribes and the Pharisees made no effort to go with the Magi to worship Christ. You know, of all the people... Here they were letting Gentiles go look for the Messiah. The scribes and the Pharisees did not go. Herod did not go. Moreover, what does verse 3 tell us? It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. They weren't filled with joy. They weren't filled with a desire to worship. They were filled with fear. They were filled with fear. And yet, notice the contrasting actions of the Magi. Gentiles, when they saw Jesus in verse 11, they fell down and they worshipped him. The irony is thick. Moreover, they brought him costly gifts. They brought him gold. We'll be back after a quick break. What is the Christian parent's greatest responsibility? To teach their children to trust the one true living God. Enrich your family devotions from the Family Worship Bible Guide. This precious book offers rich devotional thoughts for children of all ages on every chapter in the Bible. To learn more about the Family Worship Bible Guide, visit heritagebooks.org. which as of today is worth $1,884 an ounce. It's costly today, just as it was in the ancient world of the first century. They brought him frankincense 
which is a resin, a valuable resin that is used in perfumes. It's mentioned, for example, in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you, and the young camels of Midian and Epah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, speaking of the Gentiles that will flow into Jerusalem, and they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Myrrh, again, is another valuable resin used in perfumes and medicines. All of these gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and more, were fit for royalty. They outwardly manifest, however, the inward disposition of the hearts of these wise men. They gave costly gifts, not simply because they were wealthy, but rather it was a reflection of the worship and the adoration and the praise that they had for God in the flesh. The Magi, unlike Herod, the scribes and the Pharisees, or the people of Jerusalem, these Gentile dogs, strangers, aliens to the covenants and promises, they fell on their knees and their faces and they worshipped the Christ. And yet herein, I think again, lies another point where we want to ensure that we don't allow the culture to, uh, you know, to reshape our understanding of the significance of the birth of Christ. You know, we're told that the giving of gifts at this particular time of year comes from this particular action of uh, the Magi giving birth, or sorry, the Magi giving gifts to the one born, to Jesus. And again, I, I, I don't have any concern or criticism of the exchange of gifts. It's a great demonstration of kindness and love. But let's not give the gifts and forget what the text says about who the Magi gave the gifts to. They did not give gifts to one another, but rather they gave gifts to Jesus. They gave gifts to Jesus. So if we really truly want to capture the essence of this passage and the narrative surrounding Christ's birth, we should ensure that at this time of year, we give of ourselves to Christ. You know, how many of us had our lists? How many of us checked them twice? (laughs) You know, make sure you have a gift for everybody on the list. I'd be surprised if any of us had Jesus on that list. And yet, this is the point. This is the point. If we truly want to capture its essence and the essence of this passage, then we should ensure that we continually, not just once a year, but each and every day, and especially each and every Lord's Day, that we come before Christ, uh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and we shower our Savior with gifts. The gifts of the sacrifice of praise, the gifts of the sacrifice of ourselves as living sacrifices. As the author to the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Moreover, do the gifts that we give unto Christ, are they reflective of the inward disposition of the heart? Or is it just that we're merely going through the motions? I hope not. I hope it truly reflects that inward disposition of love and thanksgiving and worship and praise that we have for Christ. 
But once again, we have to remember that the only way that we will render our lives as living sacrifices is that if we first receive God's gift of Christ and his grace and the gospel first, we love because he first loved us. It's only by God's grace that these Gentile wise men saw through the fog of their own idolatrous ways in order to find their way to worship Jesus. God divinely and supernaturally guided them by the star as well as spoke to them directly in dreams and visions. So we have to pray that God would shower us in his grace in Christ, that he would guide us with his divine revelation and his word so that we too would prostrate prostrate our hearts before Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and worship him. I think so often the danger uh, that presents Uh, that we find present in our culture is that we learn enough of the truth of the scriptures, but it's enough to inoculate from its deep message. And it ends up turning our attention away from what the gospel message is all about. The message about the Magi worshiping the incarnate God becomes a Christmas carol, a little boy playing his drum for Jesus, and the Savior giving a passing, glancing smile. The birth narrative becomes a sentimental expression of holiday cheer rather than the recognition that the tiny infant that was nestled in Mary's arms would one day wear a crown of thorns and that his tiny hands that clutched Mary's fingers would one day have nails driven through them so that we, strangers and aliens to the covenants and promises of God, would have salvation. Rejoice that you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And with the Gentile wise men, bow down and worship Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for the fact that we have not come at a great distance to you, but rather you have come at a great distance to us. That you have drawn we who are afar near unto you through Christ and through your spirit, that you have given unto us the gift of Christ's love. We who hated you, we who were your enemies, we who were guilty of sin and thus warranting condemnation and judgment. And yet in your infinite love, O Lord, you have condescended to us in the likeness of sinful flesh, You have drawn us near by the power of your spirit, and you have drawn us nigh through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving. What a wonderful announcement of truth and mercy that this is. We pray, O Lord, that as many Christmases as we have celebrated, that these truths would never grow old, that they would, we would always treasure them in our hearts, and that as we read of them, as we meditate upon them, they would be ever new each and every day. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving, that you would grant to us, O oh Lord, the desire to present ourselves as living sacrifices to you, that each and every day we would ask you, O oh Lord, 
what is it that you would have us do and that we would follow your will, that we would obey your law, that we would give up of ourselves sacrificially unto Christ and that we would remember that his burden is easy and his yoke is light and that it would be a joy, O Lord, to serve you. We pray and give thanks for all of these blessings and ask that by your grace, we would never forget them. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to All of Life for God by Reformation Heritage Books. If you have enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. Reformation Heritage Books is a nonprofit ministry aiming to strengthen the church through Reformed, Puritan, and experiential literature. To learn more about this ministry and how to support us, please visit rhb.org dot o-r-g